we have gone beyond recruit to say, how do we help the employees to say, I have opportunity inside this company rather than being recruited away. So the way we talk about is, you know, find the talent you need and grow the talent you have. You're listening to What Fuels You, where we deep dive with CEOs, entrepreneurs, and business leaders to learn more about their stories and uncover nuggets of wisdom we can all use. I'm your host, Shauna Swirland, CEO of Fuel Talent, an award-winning recruiting firm based in Seattle. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Anoop Gupta. Anoop is the CEO and co-founder of SeekOut an AI-powered talent intelligence platform helping organizations recruit, retain, and grow their talent. Anoop started SeekOut after an 18-year career at Microsoft. During his tenure, Anoop was the corporate vice president of the multi-billion dollar unified communications group, Skype and Exchange. He was also the TA to Bill Gates, advising on technology and product strategy. And as a distinguished scientist at MSR, He led work on AI, natural user interfaces, and telepresence. Prior to Microsoft, Anoop was a tenured professor at Stanford University, and he holds a PhD in computer science from Carnegie Mellon University. Oh, no big deal. (laughs) Welcome, Anoop. So good to see you. Thank you, Shana. It's so nice to connect. Happy New Year. How are you? Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to hit you with rapid fire. Um, my first question is, what would you consider like the best compliment you could receive? The best compliment would be that I am kind, I am authentic, and I care deeply about what I'm doing and making a difference. Well, I would say check, check, and check. I've known you for a <laughs> long time now, and uh, I would say 100% on all of those things. Um, is there a book or a podcast that you're reading or listening to right now that you are excited about or that you've just basically lately and meaning in the last year? Actually, the most, uh, as I was telling you, we went to Peru over the holidays and the book I took with me was The Righteous Mind and it is by Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. It is about, uh, you know, a book about morality and how, you know, we think we are in the right, you know, this is just a human tendency and not totally understanding the other people's point of view. And, and it is a fascinating book, you know, given our politics, given our this thing, I always say, how can they ever think that? And this book enlightened me a little bit on where other people may be coming from, how people shape their politics. You know, as liberals, some of us may shape it based on what is fair. Are we hurting somebody else? Other people bring, you know, religion and, and you know, the author- uh, kind of authority figures and structures and how they define and the tribe mentality. And all of those are not just good or bad. They are historically often how we yeah. and what happened. So I think it's a fascinating book for uh, you know people to take a look. To I'm gonna uh, do it. I love uh, it. Yeah. Thank you. What's the first thing that you do when you wake up? 
when I wake up, the first thing is I spend around 15 seconds on the phone looking up if anything urgent came up. And then I go and right up, uh, get ready. Actually, before I do anything, I need to have shave, brush, shower, get ready. And that kind of wakes me up. I think the best thing, you know, for me, at least, to really get engaged, even if I have less sleep, is to have a hot shower. I think that's the biggest convenience invention of the modern world. <laughs> Me too. I'm all about my morning shower. I get, I get in the shower before the gym and people are like, why did you shower? I'm like, because I was asleep. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's the best. What's a guilty pleasure junk food item if you could just be like, oh, this will make me healthy, but it's so good and so naughty. <laughs> Um, so, uh, you know, they're different. So I'm into ramen noodles. I love ramen noodles. <laughs> not healthy. But if I have to eat and cook something light, so I'm into ramen noodles, big into chocolates, you know, Francis chocolates are a big guilty pleasure. And I consume lots of their salted caramel. Oh, those are beyond. Those are so good. <laughs> so good. Okay. Now I know. That's awesome. And so do you have any um, hidden talents? Do I have any hidden talents? Um, so one is I love photography. And so, you know, we have around 800 photographs from the Peru. I love sharing, you know, a lot of the walls in the office, if I was to show you. Uh, so photography is a uh, passion. Uh, that is there. Second is I am into vegetable gardening. So I'm very fond of my tomatoes and they're amazing. And somebody just introduced me to a website where they sell these amazing, you know, varieties of tomatoes, the heirloom varieties. So You'll have to send that to me because my husband loves, David loves to um, also do vegetable garden. So oh, absolutely after this, I will send you the link. Uh, I usually plant uh, seedlings, you know, big. This is seed, um, and I ordered like seventy-five dollars of seeds. Uh, oh wow! <laughs> I'm gonna have to. Come, I'm gonna have to come check out your garden. Maybe come over for a salad. I love it. So, yeah. is there someone that you think of, um, one of your ancestors, or someone who's maybe passed on that you would love to be able to talk to or have lunch with? Um. One of my ancestors, whom I, I might want to have lunch with, actually my maternal grandfather, I never had a chance to meet. He died within a year after I was born. And he influenced my mother, and my mother is my biggest hero. And, and the value she brings and the care she brings and the strength and determination for good that she brings. Um, that's it's funny because I feel like we're like friends but I don't know a lot I mean obviously I got to research you for the podcast I know that you grew up in Delhi in India thank you. Um, and I also know that you moved around for your dad's work um, I was surprised to see like including even Africa yeah so tell me tell me about how that shaped you and you talked about your mom being your hero um, what was your childhood like so you know I grew up in a middle-class family. My uh, father was a government employee in the electricity department. Uh, in the early stages, we were in the state of Punjab, which is close to Delhi, and got transferred every three years. So, you know, it was uh, 
pretty fun. You know, it's not like kids out here, I'm in the school, can't move. You know, there if you have to move like an army brat or whatever else, you just move and you learn to make friends. So the opportunity, you know, so uh, in 1972 is when my parents moved to Africa. They moved to Livingston for three years. Uh, you know, and my father was to help run the power plant that was there on the Zambezi River. Livingston is the place which is right next to Victoria Falls, you know, amazing huge falls. And my parents put me in a boarding school. They said, oh, the school's had my going. But the government paid, you know, both for winter holidays and summer holidays, we could go and travel there. So two two kinds of stories <laughs> I'll tell about you. One is in India. I was uh, a very nitpicky, non-brave kid. I used to fuss about food, what I will eat, what I will not eat, how long I took to eat. My mom won't let my sisters get up until all of us finished. And my sisters absolutely hated me because I'll take infinite time <laughs> eating whatever I had to do. So they had to go. And so, you know, I went to a very nice boarding school in Delhi. And within three months, I was totally fixed. I ate everything. I didn't fuss about anything. I was braver. So, you know, uh, <laughs> if you're having problems, send them to boarding school. You know, nobody cares whether you ate or not. And you say eventually, shit, I got to eat. Yeah, exactly. You're like, here's our little feeding window. And you, you know, take it or leave it. Where are you in the birth order? And you just have... I, I'm the youngest. I'm the youngest. So I have two older sisters. Two older sisters. And where are they now? So one of my sisters is in Delhi. And the other is in Salem, New Hampshire. Oh, wow. Yeah. And do you get to Delhi often? I go twice a year. So my mother is now 92. And so, you know, uh, she says, you know, you come and visit me and, you know, we care. So I'll actually tell you a little bit about my mother and we can get to Africa uh, after that. Um, so in many countries and cultures, you know, there's thing, you're the younger son, you're the only son, come and stay. You know, stay in India, why are you leaving? you know, whatever else. My mother never, ever asked me to do that. She said, now you pursue what will bring you happiness and success and, uh, you know, all of the things you want to explore. But the promise you have to make is come and visit me. Oh, I love that. Well, I'm guessing you were, I'm guessing school was kind of your thing because obviously you've done you went to these incredibly impressive, like prestigious um, colleges, including a PhD. Like, what was schooling like there compared to like how you've raised your kids? Uh, so, you know, schooling there is a little bit, you know, more academically focused for the boarding school I was in. You know, our principal was a mountaineer. And so we went, you know, on lots of hikes and crazy things. I tell people that there's a Jim Corbett National Park and there's a book, book about the man tigers, you know, in that part. And in India, they said, oh, we were running for the Duke of Edinburgh Bronze Award. They said, go hiking on your own. So they sent four of us kids out into the do our stuff. And wow. So we used to do all kinds of crazy things. And then a little bit about, you know, the Africa uh, part. So this was 72. 
Firstly, in India, nobody used to do air travel. Secondly, air travel was fancy at that time. Oh, yeah. As unaccompanied minors, you'll get all kinds of privileges. And then thirdly, you know, because the journey was Delhi to Mumbai, Mumbai to Nairobi, Nairobi to Lusaka, Lusaka to Livingston, you know, there were a lot of steps and we would stop in between. And we all often won't go directly. We would stop in Tanzania or we will stop in, you know, Mauritius or other countries. So we got to visit a lot of places at a young age. Okay. And all the game parks and national parks in Africa. So it really broadened my outlook. And oh, yeah. Your whole worldview is like. Yeah. The worldview compared to other things really broaden. And then what I did was end up high school. I flew from Delhi to Kabul because we can go through Pakistan and we hitchhiked our way to Western Europe. And it was just amazing. I was on a $5 a day budget. And, you know, we met so many people along the way who invited us to stay with them. So, you know, we were with some Iranian people in Kabul. They were starting in India. They said, when you're in Tehran, come and stay with us. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I love that. And so you ended up going to Indian Institute of Technology um, yes. in Delhi. And is that, I mean, your mom must be, your parents must be very proud of you. What were you thinking when you made that choice as far as like what you wanted to be when you grew up? So, uh, you know, there are two kinds of you know, Indian parents, though the parents didn't influence me that much. Uh, you know, there's engineer, be a doctor, be one of those things, yeah, you know, and professional and IITs are the best. And so they have a huge entrance exam. They take probably around one, one and a half percent of the people who take the entrance exam. Uh, and so today, I took the first day, my parents were in Africa. I said, I'm not going for the second day. I am definite I'm going to fail. <laughs> I did not pass it. So, you know, pretty terrible things. But I actually, you know, of course, got in. So they are amazing, you know, institutes, highly competitive. Um, that are in the people inside. So when I joined and I went there the first day, I said, no, I want to leave. There are too many smart people. <laughs> uh -huh. Too intense. <laughs> too intense yeah were you thinking you wanted to be an engineer what i wanted to be was more of a scientist you know so it was engineering was a pathway actually to at that time get to the united states get a phd get really deep into subjects and it was not uh you know just become an engineer though there's nothing absolutely wrong uh, with that, uh, but my aspirations were to do a lot more and go deeper. Yeah. So did you go straight from Delhi right to Carnegie Mellon? Yes. So you got your PhD um, at Carnegie Mellon. So there's no like, usually it's like undergrad, then master's, then PhD, you went straight. Yeah, the way so CMU is, is that there is no separate master's. You know, in our class, there were only 18 students in the PhD oh, wow. program wow. Uh, that they get. It was a very exclusive, again, program yeah. and a lot of personalization and, you know, personal attention. So it was a fantastic place for us to go. And Shauna, the biggest, uh, uh, not accomplishment, but the biggest you know, thing out of CMU was, of course, I got an amazing education, but I met my wife there 
and we've been married ever since. Oh yeah, and are you still are you guys still in touch with your classmates? I'm sure they've gone on yeah. to do incredible things. What yeah. an what an amazing network. So were you thinking, um, I want to go be an entrepreneur and or an operator, but then you went and became a professor. So I didn't know, you know, many people know what they want to do. Uh, I didn't know I'll get a PhD. I didn't know I, uh, somebody will hire me. So I'm very kind of, you know, this syndrome, uh, what would they call it, imposter syndrome. Yeah. So, well, you're, you're so humble. I mean, for people listening, like, obviously recruiting for 30 years, I've seen all sorts of resumes. Your resume is in the like 0. 0.00000, like 1% of um, just pedigree. I mean, it's just incredible what you've accomplished. And you're so low key about it. <laughs> so you were a professor at at Stanford, Stanford yeah. for eleven years. So, so, so you know, I went there. I, uh, you know, so I was very lucky and um, had great offers. And Stanford was amazing. Stanford was amazing in terms of the call, uh, you know, colleagues. I worked very closely with John Hennessy, then who was the president uh, for a long time. We had a lot of students. We still stay in touch, and. Uh, <clears throat> on that side of it. And so, you know, the, we looked at doing a startup, Stanford as a culture of you know, professors going to startups. It's not about just writing papers, it's about making a difference in the world. And so in 95, late 95, we decided to do a startup in the streaming media business. So it was just the days of the internet, the Netscape browser just come out, the internet explorer was just coming out. So myself, a couple of my students, and then Diane Green, who later attended, you know, VMware, uh, did that startup, and it was a lot of fun. It was a little crazy. We were all too young. We didn't know as much on how the world operates. There was a lot of, you know, when I actually go and talk to people now, I said there was a lot of me versus we, uh, you know, at that stage of. Uh, life, but we were, you know, acquired by Microsoft in July 97. And then I spent 18 years there. It was an amazing experience. Yeah. Tell mm -hmm. me some of your key takeaways. Um, I, I heard one that you just said just about like, you know, transitioning your mindset from me to we. Um, but Microsoft, you know, you were there at such an incredibly exciting time. And for such a long period, I've seen a lot of people who just kind of never leave. Right. They just they're still at Microsoft. I'm sure you're in touch with a lot of them. Yes. What what were some of your takeaways um, as you, you know, now you're founder and CEO of Seekout, which we're going to get to, but it gives you an opportunity as a CEO and founder to create a culture and a mindset of your own. What things did you take away from your experience at Microsoft from a culture standpoint? So I think Microsoft at that time used to be a lot of different cultures. You know, Bomber, Steve Bomber was CEO. When I actually when I left, Satya had just taken over as the CEO. And I worked closely with Bill Gates and all of the antitrust that was happening and how that impacted him. So if you would recall an image. Uh, from that era of Microsoft is, you know, a lot of guns pointing internally at each other, a lot of internal competition, you know, for resources, big teams and everything else, and um, less in terms of, you know, true innovation, although Bill was driving hard, 
a lot of the you know leaders below you know i felt had their own agendas and um, you know not necessarily coming from a bad place in the heart uh but that was there. one of the things uh, you know when we uh, when i left uh microsoft you know i say at microsoft you need one person to say no for the project to be killed okay while in the startup world you know you need one person one vc one funder to say yes say yes yeah for you to that's be, interesting you know yeah. for you to be pursue the idea so many you know projects and ideas and good ones and bad ones got killed and i don't want to at all say that was a bad thing for microsoft and so in a large company, you got to bring focus and stuff is broad focus and what you do. But there was a deep desire in me to, you know, go out and explore this thing. You know, Ubers were happening and all kinds of oh, things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you had you had some significant roles. I know you were technology assistant to Bill Gates. Like, what does that mean to people? I've heard people say, get Bill ready. Like, you know, uh, there has to be a certain way of conducting yourself and working at that level um what did that mean to you and tell me about that job yeah no sure sure so the way to think about it is you know there are a lot of different things that bill does right so it means he does a lot of product reviews okay because he is deep into products uh, he goes and makes a lot of visits. He go, used to go to Comdex and CS and a lot of things. Bill does, you know, his Think Week is very famous, and I think it came out in a Netflix but He goes away for a week and reads a lot of stuff. Okay. So uh, I'll give an example from Think Week because it might be. So if he's going away for a week and reading a lot of stuff, a request is made to all of Microsoft, and otherwise, what should he go and read? So my job was to read everything in advance. I had a very good idea of Bill's interest, what's top of mind, and then select the things that actually went to him for reading. Wow. So I, I had to go and do um, you know all of that, or people were coming for product reviews or other kinds of things. You know, I would talk to them and tell them and advise them and you know how it could be better. I used to run the uh, for many parts of it, the Microsoft SLT, you know, so that is Bomber and all the top level leaders and what the agendas and the topics and how we should have many of those meetings. And, you know, that was good. Sometimes, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm sure uh, Microsoft people, at least at that point, any large effort you do, you say how smooth and, you know, how they make decisions must be. In general, in any corporation at any level, one of my learnings was there was a lot of sausage making that happens. And the large companies are no different. Yeah. So, you know, learning about all of that and how they operate and thinking, you know, uh, was really uh, important. And there were many kind people who gave me opportunities to learn, which was wonderful. Yeah. How did you navigate that when you talk about that culture of like, um, not like dog eat dog, but a little bit, you know, super competitive, but you're just, you're trying to get, get projects done, get things across the finish line, not be bureaucratic. Um, is it to over communicate? 
or like, what did you learn as far as how to communicate with others and, and, and influence? Because I think that I'm watching Seek Out, you know, I've been watching since day one and we can get to it, but I, you've just really blown the company up so quickly. And I'm guessing part of that is um, persistence, but also being, um, you know, so approachable and so humble and so easy to communicate with. Um, yeah. so you I learn that or is that like, that's just who I am? No, that is who I am, but I learned a lot of things too. So the general thing is, um, you know, if you're trying to make something happen, okay, one is you need to communicate, but the communicate is you need to understand the stakeholders. You need to understand their interests, where they're coming from. You have to make the case in a way that is, you know, beneficial to them and their agenda in some say in some sense. So I learned a lot about understanding and reading the stakeholders and communicating to them, making the case to them. And that is not a bad thing. That is a good skill, right? Oh, for all sure. Us, whether we talk to our spouse or our children, we are always trying to sell our ideas to them. 100%. And uh, understanding that. And one of the actually, so now I'll, I'll go on a little tangent. You know, another book, which I should have read a long time ago, I read Chris Voss's book, Never Split the Difference. So Chris Voss used to be a negotiator for the FBI, for yep. the, the hostages, hostages and, yeah. and everything else. And he talks about how everything is a negotiation in some sense, and how do you elicit and understand and communicate and what you do. It's a brilliant book that people should go and read if they haven't read it already. Yeah, I've heard great things about it. I haven't read it, but I've read little little clips um, from it and it's actually been recommended. So I appreciate that. I always love getting nuggets. Um, so you talked about having like a little bit, you know, the Ubers starting and these other companies and having this entrepreneurial bug. Um, what was the like, was there a moment of like, okay, I have to do this. I always love hearing those origin stories. Like, did you have, <laughs> did you have like an idea and then you go find who you're going to do the idea with, or you're having drinks with friends or on a hike with friends. And it's like, oh, we should do this. Like, how did, how did the business so, come to be? And tell me about your co-founders. So my co-founder, uh, you know, main one when we started was Arvind Bala. Uh, he used to be the dev manager for the group that I was, uh, Meeting, yeah. You know, we are trying to bring some big changes around, and he had an entrepreneurial spirit, wanted to do it. He was the loveliest person in terms of kindness and integrity and smarts. I've worked with a lot of smart people, you know, from Stanford's and other places, but his ability to get things done to build things, to build prototypes was just amazing. So we both decided that we're gonna quit. You know, so, and the way I, you know, sometimes have talked about it, Shona, is that at Microsoft, they give you an 18 wheeler and they say, drive around and find innovation, right? So find innovation because it has to be big and huge and everything else. And what we wanted to do and start with is start on a mountain bike to be able to explore the nooks and crannies of the landscape. And we understand uh, it is very hard 
you know, skin our knees. It's not like driving around in this comfortable baked rig. Uh, that, that is there, and that is what we wanted to do. And, you know, we want to thank Microsoft for giving us the financial background. So we said we can take off. And we didn't take off, you know, with a specific idea. We knew we had so many ideas amongst us. And then we spent the first three, four months actually playing a lot of tennis, playing a lot of long lunges. Uh, and, you know, we'll come up with ideas. We had a methodology for testing those ideas and then we'll reject those ideas. And in fact, Seekout started as a messaging company yeah. and not as a talent company. Yeah, I know. That's that's crazy. And when you're having these conversations together, how much of it is um, not like getting a prenup, but like almost like, hey, we're going through pre-marriage counseling. Like we got to work through every like, do we want the same things? Do we have the same leadership styles? Like do complement one another as far as our two minds? You know, like how how much did you just trust your gut and know like, oh, this is a proven person? Or were you like future casting on kind of all the what ifs? Now, in this case, you know, because he and I, Arvind and I had worked for quite a while, it was a proven thing. Yeah. He believed in the integrity and the good heart. Uh, and they were complementary skills. I don't code any. I've coded and everything else. I don't code any longer. Yeah. Our does that part of it, but he has a business mind too. And I am deep technologist too. And I understand yeah. what's possible, not possible, what's interesting. So so how uh, did you guys come up with the name? And and you said the idea was a messaging platform, not in the talent space. What, what was the original business and when did it pivot and why? Okay, so the um, default name that we started with because we didn't know what we were going to do was Zipstorm. And in our contracts, you might still see Zipstorm. The company we built, was we said, how do we get people to open up to receiving communications and to reduce spam? So there the notion was think about email with a post-it stamp, right? So you still get spam in your uh, uh, you know, physical mail, but there's less because it costs actually money. You've got to be selective who you send out and how you have conversations. So we said for the attention economy, okay, we need to put constraints and friction on the sender side of the messages controlled by the recipient and still opening up to reach out because, you know, you say we have something good to say. So we did that, but we were not successful, you know, maybe not good marketing, maybe not good thinking, you know, to get a very large community of people uh, to do that. So for that, we did a bootstrapping this thing we went and analyzed all resumes in the united states and uh you know, then we could tell you your career pathway is possible what have people like you done what companies they have gone to what new different roles they have gone to so we built something like that uh, actually a bootstrapping uh, mechanism for the messaging business because then you sign up you bring your profile yeah you know into the into the system. So the other side was not going off, but this side of, you know, having the career insights, knowing what is to be done was getting a lot more traction and interest 
both from recruiters and other people. Uh, and that is when we said, oh, this is not working. We decided to pivot around two, two and a half years, two, two years into the business. So, and then we, the talent business then just grew from that. So we said, okay, you know, this is helpful, but then how do we go beyond what LinkedIn does? And so we say diversity and how do we get GitHub information and how do we get papers, patterns, jobs, talent pool insights, emails and ways to contact. And then now, of course, we have gone beyond recruit to say, how do we help the employees in a company to say, I have opportunity inside this company rather than being recruited away. Mm -hmm. So the way we talk about is, you know, find the talent you need and grow the talent you have. Yeah, I like that. And so how did how did you come up with the name Seek Out? Okay, so uh, yeah, I, so we were, you know, so we started the company in the cabana of our house. We were sitting around and we say, oh, we're going to the talent <laughs> and what names? So it just randomly arose from that. Seek out and then the domain is available and it's very relevant. That's amazing. It's a perfect name. That's why I was like, oh, there's no way that it was available. And so the, I know the core part of the business, um, you know, you've got Seek Out Recruit, you've got Seek Out Grow yes. and Seek Out Assist. Yeah. Um, tell me about how all of those different businesses work. You started to get into it, but the core part was the Seek Out Recruit and then you kind of expanded from there. Yeah. So the way to think about it, the motivation is that, uh, you know, talent is foundational to companies, right? And, and you can't think of talent just as a recruit. You know, you have talent inside, especially for example, you know, the recent times when the hiring is not so much the budget's the type, you really need to see who you already have in the company, who can you upscale, what can you do? So let me start with the recruit a little bit and I'll tell you what migrated us to grow quite easily. And the seek out assist is about the AI part and it applies to both of those things. So on the recruit side, as I said, we were bringing in lots of different databases, you know, public, uh, you know, profiles, GitHub profile, and you have to match and build. So there's a very flexible and powerful database underneath okay, which is, you know, a billion profiles are being updated in real time all the time. There's a lot of noisy data that needs to be cleaned up. There are a lot of inferences that we do about skills of people, about the diversity of people, about the security clearances, all of those kinds of things you want to be able to show. So we built, you know, that, and that is what people love about Seek Out Recruit the many dimensions that we give them. Then you say, when you go inside the company, the interesting thing is people don't understand the employees they have. There was some resume that got some submitted, you know, in an application that got thrown away. So they don't know the history. Then the, what they've done inside the company, people also don't understand. Uh, okay, because the data is scattered, there's some in their HRIS workday, there's some in the learning management, but a lot of it is in the GitHubs and the JIRAs and the Salesforce and the Asanas and all of the other systems, so people don't have. The system that we had built for external, okay, 
was so that all of this internal data can also be very easily integrated in. Plus, we could get, bring the external information internal very, very quickly. Okay, so that became the foundation, and uh, maybe I'll talk about actually some of our defense customers. Okay, this is really important to them because the defense customers succeed by bidding on projects, you know, so Department of Defense says, you know, hey, to enhance this particular, you know, system, here's half a billion dollars, what you're gonna do, but they require you to say, you know, you gotta let us know who are the thousand people you're gonna put on the project, that you have the right talent to go and do this. And they were doing it through spreadsheets because they don't know who are the people coming off the projects, they don't know what are the security clearances, all of it was in different databases and mechanical. So we can bring custom data into the foundation and that becomes what we call the talent intelligence platform. And then on top of that, we build you know, solutions for the HR business partners and the business leaders. And then there is the employee side solutions you know, because we connect to the learning courses, the open jobs, to say here are the opportunities for the employee self-service capability. So employees can discover and be notified of important opportunities they're interested in. Yeah, it's a, it's amazing like to have watched on the sidelines and and close up and you know obviously um, using the platform like it's just been incredible. So um, when you first started, you considered I guess LinkedIn a competitor. Yes. Um, how do you, if somebody's not using Seekout and they're just curious, like, how does this compare to LinkedIn? What do you say when they ask? And then also, in case somebody's listening that might want to be a customer, is there a minimum size or a minimum number of seats that they need to have, like, size company? Yeah. So, you know, in terms of comparison to LinkedIn, we bring a lot of untapped talent, you know, the talent that may not be there on LinkedIn to it, and a lot of inferred properties about the talent, as I said. It's a much more, so, you know, you win in that. It is a much more powerful search engine in finding people. It is a way to uh, also contact people beyond emails. So, you know, it is useful in that. So there are many dimensions in which it stands out. And some companies use us as a complement to LinkedIn in addition to LinkedIn, and some companies use us as a substitution for a part of their LinkedIn spend. Um, there are no minimum sizes. So, you know, we have companies, Shona, like yourselves, which might be small businesses, but, you know, very powerful and very, you know, beneficial to the organizations that might use it. And we have some of the largest enterprises in the world also, you know, use us. Yeah. So and what's, what's the business model? So the business model is for the recruiting side, it is a per seat pricing with volume discount. Okay. The model for the CCAP growth side is based on number of employees that an organization has as we create opportunities for the employees. And what if they use you for both? Are those like a merged like 
I'm saying is that, you know, in enterprise sales, Shauna, it's always a little bit of negotiation. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and tell me about Seek Out Assist. I mean, obviously, having been in the recruiting space for so long, um, AI is something to pay very close attention to. How how does Seek Out Assist work? So Seek Out Assist, you know, like the Microsoft Copilot is a general term we are using on how we bring AI uh, into the recruiting world. So the first thing we shipped is, hey, job descriptions are kitchen sinks. Most people are not good at Boolean and how to construct meaningful searches. You just enter, you know, the job description, paste the job description and whatever ugly format, we will extract the stuff from it and construct a search and give you results. Okay, which are hopefully very good to begin with, but you can manipulate, you know, it's never starting with a clean state, but starting with a slate so that you can build a search. You know, we say from job description to candidates, you know, within, you know, less than a minute or to, you know, to engage. The second thing we started using it was for messaging. Again, you know, you find a thing and you say, I've got to write a message. You want to personalize the message based on the job requirements, based on what you have done in the past, how does it match, why is it meaningful work, or whatever else. So generative AI can be very powerful in doing that, but you know there's a lot of refinement on how do you do it well. So you know we are uh, we have shipped that you know, yeah. the HR Tech award for them. Another yeah, I thing, saw that. That was amazing. No, thank you, Shana. Another thing that is shipping uh, this month is conversational search. So think about it as following, right? I will take an analogy and then come to seek out. So if you look at Excel, Excel has so much functionality. People don't know how to use it. People don't know what to do. And imagine you could just simply say it in the English language, you know, build me a pivot table. I want to be able to sort and search like this, remove the duplicates. You can do that. And you can do it because Excel is actually very, very powerful as a platform underneath. Just people don't know what it can do. People know 1%, 2%, 5% what Excel can do. Similarly, Seekout underneath is a very powerful platform in the kinds of searches, the kind of filtering, the kinds of things you can do. And most recruiters know a very small part of CCAT. So what the conversational search lets you do is expose the whole different capabilities. You can just say, you know, find me people on West Coast City. Find me people in- Oh, wow, that's amazing. I so. Because I know you've done, you have trainings um, for Boolean searches and we've done some of the trainings and, but how cool, because you don't have to know all of the different ampersand and this, you know, all the things. I mean, I'm old school. I do know some Boolean searches, but I'm much more of like a relationship building recruiter yeah. than, you know, than using all the technology. Wow. That's exciting. Yeah. Can someone just use, can a company just use Seekout Assist without using Seekout Recruiter, Seekout Grow? So I'm saying Seekout Assist is not a product. It oh, it's is not a, it's not its own. It's just built under the other two. It's built on top. So on top. <laughs> recruiter, you can, you know, 
do all your searches using Cicadesis, they never go to any Boolean or anything else. Yeah. We also give you the power of our power filters and other kinds of things. So it is, you can use just one or you can use one to start and then add the power of the rest of the things. So if you say, oh, you know, find me veterans, you've done a great search, but you can click on a button and, you know, get just veteran candidates. Yeah. So I know that for you, and I love this about you, culture is everything. Um, I read about your culture, practice your, your values, practice gratitude, work collaboratively, stay curious, lift each other up. Those are all so reflective of, I haven't met your, your co-founder, but so reflective of your vibe and energy. I love it. Tell me about culture at Seek Out. So culture used to be something theoretical to me when I was in Microsoft, you know, things you put on the website or whatever. And it really hit us when we went into COVID, we went all remote and we said, let's start getting together. And we said in this time when there is a lot of pain for people, let us start with we had weekly all hands meeting. We started spending the first 15 minutes on gratitude. And the whole thing is that our mindset, the approach we take to problem, the approach we take to circumstances matters. Okay. 100%. And that is where gratitude and kindness has served us so well. How people became vulnerable, people told stories, how we came together, and the culture propagated as we grew because people learned from stories. People learn what culture is from the stories that people tell. And to do to this day, we have that practice. So, you know, we, we can um, leave it there, but, you know, that is what made it real. It was real stories, it was real people, it was real how people behave. And that is what culture is about and how you're on a common mission to make a difference, make a positive difference. Yeah, I've only heard of people loving working there. So I'm, no, I'm not surprised. And I know obviously you've, achieved incredible success, so many awards um, as a CEO, as a company, and your, you know, the whole unicorn status, all of it is super exciting. Where do you go from here? So, you know, the whole Gen, I think, Gen AI is actually very exciting to us. And you'll say why. So I'll give you a very simple, uh, you know, perspective. So all of, uh, you know, what we deal with people, you know, finding them for jobs or how they can grow, it is about understanding people better. You know, what skills they have, what experiences they have, what they can do. Turns out a lot of it is written in the English language. You know, when you look at a resume, you have to read as a human what they did. Did they use this to build an application used by millions or five people or, what kind of security, you know, if you're working at SpaceX versus a car company, all of those things are in the English language. And then a lot of it is in the code you wrote or Salesforce, what you did. The power of Gen AI is that you can now start understanding that English and you can start reasoning with that English language and the code and everything else. So I think we are all in a time of big transformation and revolution in some sense, because we will be able to go much deeper than we have ever done. 
And you couldn't do that one year before, and you can do that now, and the technology is evolving very fast. So what you will be able to do is gonna be so much more. So that is, uh, you know, so AI not as a theoretical as a, or, you know, as a buzzword, but there are some deep changes that are gonna happen. And we are excited to be at the forefront and, you know, enabling and bringing those changes to life. Yeah, I'm excited to continue to watch and cheer you on. Um, my final question for you before I uh, say goodbye is what fuels you? Um, it's a, it's a uh, you know, very deep question, Shauna. Uh, uh, I've been blessed in life in many ways, so it is it is a question I ask. You know, what drives me and what do I care about? So I think there are three things. The first is I love working with good people. You know, working with colleagues where you come in and you say you're excited and you explore and you're you know, you know, they're kind and they, you know, they're smart and you know, you know, so people, the colleagues, the people you work with is really important to me. The second thing for me is, are we innovating? Are we bringing something new? Are we generating new capabilities? Um, I think that innovation is very important. And that is my background, that is what I've done, that I believe is my superpower in some sense. So leveraging that is really important. And the third thing is, it is not just innovation, it is making a difference. So that is the business side of it. I don't wanna just create something. I want to make a difference in the world, right? So that side is the third one. And all those three, I think, are the drivers for me in, from a business side. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. If you'd like to check out past episodes to hear from more business leaders, go to fueltalent.com backslash podcast. And if you have a minute, please leave a review and rating on your favorite podcast app or share this episode with a friend or colleague. Please share any feedback or interview suggestions for other guests by sending a message to podcast at fueltalent.com. I'm Shauna Swirland, and thanks again for listening. Thank you.